Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played T.T. Riley in the 2002 film Par 6, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. Now, whatever happened to Par 6? I have to tell you, this is one of those movies that was so delightful and we had such a good time making this film. And I had one of the scariest, one of the scariest shots I had to do as an actor. It takes place on a golf course, of course, that uh, this, this poor guy in a trailer, he wants to build the greatest golf course in the world in the middle of the Texas desert. And there was a shot in which I had to hit the golf ball toward the crew that they were shooting at me. So everyone in the crew was had kind of those plexiglass screens in front of them to protect themselves from being killed. And it was probably the best golf shot I ever hit, except the wind was blowing so hard in my face that the golf ball actually flew up over the heads of the crew and then flew back behind me. So uh, we, we, we couldn't use the shot. But what happens to these great movies that you make that just vanish somewhere? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, Stephen, I think you said something once uh, on a previous episode of the podcast. In order uh, to, to kind of, quote unquote, make it, you need to make a movie that is good, uh, that, is, that is seen, and, and, that you, or, and that is like you're good in it, right? I think that was the formula. Like, yes. um, it's seen by people, uh, it's good, and you are good in it. That is true. And in this particular uh, triangle of events, no one saw it. Yeah, which is a shame because it's directed by Grant Hesloff, who's a very talented director and an actor. Uh, he's been in movies like True Lies and Argo and The Monuments Men. So uh, a bummer, but maybe people will discover Par 6 after hearing you talk about it. It's delightful. Uh, on the Tobolowski Files. It is yeah. truly delightful. Truly. Uh, well, Stephen, speaking of things that are truly delightful, you have been traveling around the country uh, promoting your new book, My Adventures with God, which is available right now on Amazon.com, and you've been meeting with lots of eager Tobolowski Files fans, doing interviews for radio David, stations, David Chen. Getting, the name out, getting the name out there. David yeah? Chen, there is so much love for you all over this great country of ours. Everywhere I go, people come up to get their book signed, but they say... What is David Chin really like? I, I so <laughs> admire David Chin. David Chin is so great. And, and I, all I can say is, yes, I feel humbled in the presence of David uh, with the uh, massive amounts of talent that David has. And, uh, but I'm, I'm saying everywhere I went, everywhere on the tour, people came up specifically and wanted to send you uh, their good wishes. So there's a lot of love in this great country for David Chen. Well, that's that's very nice. I mean, it's it's obvious, Stephen, that one of us who's co-hosting this podcast has a ton of talent and a storied history in the movies and is therefore uh, really providing a lot of star wattage to the other person to draft off of. Yeah, yeah. Now, so. and, and I do appreciate it. But I, I, I meet all sorts of people. I was, I was just in uh, Washington, D.C., and I met Kinji uh, again. Do you know who Kinji is? No, I don't, I don't know I don't think is. he's been in the podcast. Kinji uh, was one of the drivers in our 
elementary school carpool here in Los Angeles, and he's just moved to Washington. So out of the blue, I see this face from my past. Uh, I was doing uh, Leonard Balton's podcast here in Los Angeles about the book, and I was waiting, and it was in a comic book store, Is and I believe, David— I, I may be mistaken about this, but I believe you and I met for the first time on the sidewalk in front of this comic book store. Does that ring a bell? Uh, yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Well, well I, I go inside, and I, I, I was there a little early, and so Leonard Malton, who is like, to me, one of the gods of film criticism, we always used to buy the Bible. I'm waiting to go in. I got there early, and one of the uh, clerks... <laughs> I was talking to one of the clerks there, and it turned out that he wasn't just a comic book clerk, that he was a real live physicist, yeah, working in the comic book store. And he told me he was not currently working on chasing down the beginning of time, but his other job was being employed by a video company creating movement algorithms that are more realistic. And I asked him all sorts of questions. Uh, what was the Big Bang? Why was the Big Bang? What was here before the Big Bang? He listened patiently. Then he explained something that was so obvious it had completely escaped me. He said, scientists aren't really trying to tell the story of the beginning of the universe at all. They're only trying to reveal and then prove physical laws that govern space and time. He said, we invent a story that matches those laws. As those laws morph or new laws are discovered, the story will naturally change. The bottom line is, science is not interested in a good story, as it is with an accurate outline. I left my conversation with the physicist with the distinct feeling that even though we like to think that science is replacing old questions with new certainties, science is really replacing old certainties with new questions. In practical terms, this means that the way someone defines the beginning of something is not really a question of fact, but only a philosophy. There are many moments I can point to as bearing the shape and substance of what I became. The proto-universe would include a love of life from my mother, love of music from Claire Richards, a love of the horrible as a member of the Dangerous Animals Club, the combination of fissionable elements grew through childhood, a love of sport from my brother, a love of religion from Rabbi Klein in Sunday school, a love of steak from the charcoal broiler on Jefferson Boulevard. The heat from the interaction of all of these was multiplied by the stress of leaving home for college. Add large amounts of beer and my close association to my new roommate Jim McClure and the stage was set for a volatile transformation. The actual Big Bang had to be my sophomore year at SMU. I was torn between two poles. My loves were consolidated under one banner named Beth. In her presence, I became many things. Some days I woke up and thought I was Jock Brell. I ran to the piano practice rooms in the drama school to write love songs. Some days I became E.E. E. Cummings and wrote odd poetry in blank verse, all dedicated to her. I found one of these poems in an old notebook. Put on your seatbelt. This is going to be a rough ride. Here is a poem I wrote for Beth when I was 19 going on 20. Please walk upon the garden softly 
and sip your tea with tender lips, because I believe my love is falling and no one should upset her rest. Because today would cry to nightfall and mourn the loss of a dearly dawn, so sip your tea with tender teacups and gentle toes upon the lawn. That's not all of it. It goes on and on. All inspired by the fact that Beth liked to sleep late. One of the first tests of love is to listen to a poem someone wrote for you. After a few months of dates in the cafeteria for dinner, we took the plunge and held hands. We met in our dorm room in costume and enacted scenarios entitled Sailor on Shore Leap Meets Whore or Japanese Geisha Tea Service Whore Meets American Tourist. Despite the role-playing and the use of the word whore, there was never any sex. We were virgins, which was a difficult status to maintain in the age of Woodstock. The negative pole in my life was just as powerful. It presented itself in the form of my new acting teacher, Joan Potter. I was lucky. Joan was not aware that I had spent hours watching Godzilla movies and was familiar with the shape of something that rises out of the depths bent on destruction. Just as my love for Beth seemed to have the power to inspire, the presence of Joan Potter was just as potent. She taught me how quickly one's life could be reshaped by misery. On any given day, Joan could attack. The attacks could be slight or existential. She could rage or feign goodwill. In the first few weeks of my sophomore year, she made it clear she wanted me out of the department. But as the school year passed... I suspected I had misjudged my monsters. She didn't want to just crush me. She wanted my soul. She knew better than most that an actor without a stage becomes the living dead. She made one critical miscalculation. She left me with no options. I couldn't vanish like a vampire hit by sunlight, so I kept going to classes in spite of her efforts. It was hurtful for me at the time, but I imagine it was equally as hurtful for Miss Potter. The only thing academics have going for them is that people take them seriously. If they're ignored, all they could do is get another cat, and cats won't listen to them either. Perhaps I wouldn't have been so miserable if I had the proper perspective. I had already received an important bit of advice in my humanities class from the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca. In one of his letters he wrote, I account you unfortunate in that you have never been unfortunate. You've passed through life without an adversary. No one can know your potentiality. Not even you. I never made the connection to my life at the time. I was too busy writing love poems. During those dark ages, I had support from an unexpected quarter. Jim McClure. I never spoke about my conflicts with Joan Potter to anyone. Like a beaten wife, I was too embarrassed. And Joan was an expert at leaving the scene of a crime without a trace. When Jim and I would go out drinking, over a beer he would call her names that were so vile the English language had decided to keep them in the original Latin. As I look back, a simple throwaway conversation made a lasting impression. Jim and I were in the green room looking at upcoming audition announcements on the call board. Without looking at me, he said almost to himself, Rumi, this is a rare time in our lives. We're probably the most unsafe we'll ever be. We're away from the protection of home and at the mercy of adults who don't care how much they hurt us. You know, if we were older, 
these asswipes wouldn't have a chance. This is the one time they have the power to push us around. We just have to wait them out. As Jim's former roommate, I was used to ignoring his many rants. But over the years, this moment has come back to me again and again, and I wonder if Jim knew more about my situation than I suspected and was trying to give me encouragement. It's possible. It makes another event that happened about the same time make more sense. Jim asked me to play Brutus to his Cassius for Joan Potter's scene study class. We were rehearsing in the Bob Hope Theater. Joan came in to check in on our progress and give us some notes. Jim and I got into full Roman drag. I wore a toga with a rope belt so I'd look like someone collecting money at the airport. Jim opted for the Italian Hercules movie look and went bare-chested with a little skirt and a sword held up by a leather belt. Joan walked into the theater and settled into the front row. She pulled her glasses down to the end of her nose, readied her pad and penciled, and signaled us to begin. I thought the scene went fairly well, considering we were college students playing the leads in Julius Caesar. Joan walked up on stage, looking over her notepad. She dismissed me offhand, saying I was wrong for the part and didn't have the proper gravitas to play Brutus, and I'm sure she was right. Then she turned on Jim. Well, I didn't really believe you were dangerous as Cassius. There was no threat. Cassius's presence should fill the audience with fear. Well, I felt there was a tension, said Jim. I didn't. It all seemed like posturing and pretend. Joan said and started to leave the theater. Jim drew his sword. How about now? Joan turned and looked at Jim with confusion. What? Do you feel any threat now? Jim started walking toward her. He slashed at the air with his sword. Joan jumped and began backing away from him. We work hard on this scene and we don't need you coming in here talking to us like that. Joan retreated down the stairs off the stage. Jim jumped off the stage to cut her off. He pointed his sword at her. Where are you going? I'm ready for your notes. You get back on the stage, Joan shouted. Jim kept advancing. Joan turned and ran down a row of seats. Jim chased her, swinging his sword. She yelled, stop that, stop that, put that sword down. Jim continued his pursuit. He yelled, First thing you need to learn is how to talk to actors. You need to show some respect. Then he slammed his sword down onto the back of the seats. Joan yelped. Jim continued, You think this is easy? We're trying to do Shakespeare here. Joan ran full speed out of the theater. Jim stopped and yelled, Looks like you think I'm pretty dangerous now. Am I still pretending? Joan was gone. There was a moment of silence, then Jim started laughing and held his hands up in victory. Uh, Jim, you think she's going to call the police? Jim thought about it for a second and said, probably not. He sheathed his sword and walked back up onto the stage. You sure, I said? Well, what's she going to say? Officer, I was watching a Cassius Brutus scene that went terribly wrong. Well, what should we do, I asked. Jim shook his head, roomy. Relax. Now is the time to stop and smell the roses. Enjoy the moment. You know, she moved pretty fast considering her age. Yeah, and she was wearing heels too, I said. Do you think she'll kick us out of class? Jim pondered. Nah. Probably give us A's for being in the moment. Anyway, I can't wait to see her face next time we do this scene. I never said a word to anyone about the Battle of the Bob Hope Theater. 
Again, I was too embarrassed, and I thought it would only heap more trouble on my head, and probably Jim's. But there was nothing. No arrests, no police reports. And despite being no witnesses, the whispers in the hallway began the next day. In the retelling, I had vanished from the scene. Carol came up to me after first period theater history. Stephen, did you hear? Jim McClure chased Joan Potter with a sword. After lunch, I ran into Pat. She was suppressing a smile and said under her breath, Hey, Tobo, you hear the news? McClure tried to kill Potter. That was over 40 years ago. At our recent theater department reunion in Los Angeles, I was cozied up in a booth in a restaurant surrounded by the noise of a hundred different memories being shared over cocktails. Cheryl reached over and grabbed my arm. Tobo, you remember when McClure chased Potter out of the school with the sword? I nodded. Yeah, hard to forget. Cheryl sighed. I miss him so much. It's hard to miss him when he's still with us. That's the thing about a legend. Long shelf life. Cheryl leaned forward and whispered, Do you think he was ever happy? Well, sure, Cheryl. As long as he had a play to work on, he was happy. But he always seemed so angry. I shook my head. No. Only when he was fighting to protect what he loved. I wish I had a dime For every bad time But the bad times always seem to keep the change You've been all alone So you know what I'm saying Scientific theories about the Big Bang are consistent consistently confusing. They have to be, according to physicists. Human biology has wired our brains to see patterns and purpose, to understand the reason why things happen. Figuring out the why has served humanity well. It enabled us to evolve more effective methods of hunting and to discover the miracle penicillin. It was less successful in declaring that witches float. The Big Bang, in particular, doesn't lend itself to the ordinary notions of cause and effect. Since the birth of the universe was also the beginning of time and space, any explanation of the Big Bang cannot include references to time or space. They didn't exist yet. So everything we know, the stars, the sun, the earth, our lives, our dreams, our nightmares, has come from an effect without a cause. There was no buildup, no series of dominoes falling, no rising action, no motive. There is no story. The only thing we can do is what my physicist, who now works on video games, suggests. Provide an accurate outline and figure it all out later. I point to Beth and Joan Potter as the two magnetic poles that changed me. The playwright could say they were personifications of love and fear. But there was a third force that had no human form but was equally powerful. I was lonely. This is different than being alone. Now I love being alone. I crave the peace, the freedom it gives my thoughts, the feeling that I'm a part of nothing and part of everything. But when I was 19 going on 20, 
I hadn't developed the appreciation of solitude. I would burn. I would ache. Late at night when I couldn't sleep and felt overwhelmed, I found relief in something that I still find surprising. I would get out of bed and drive. Gas was cheap, and the night didn't seem empty. The darkness had potential. One midnight drive, I imagined I would go to a bar and talk to a stranger, or go to a midnight movie, or go to a jazz club and get lost in a saxophone solo. Instead, I stopped and bought a bucket of fried chicken. Also, what was surprising, I ate most of it. It was good. From then on, whenever I felt lonely, I didn't toss and turn. I headed for Church's Fried Chicken on Fitzhugh. Twelve pieces, extra crispy. I wasn't worried about calories or cholesterol. Church's was a step up from my regular diet of Slim Jims and Fritos. Midnight chicken became a routine. This habit led me to formulate my first commandment. Loneliness will make you think outside the box, even if you only end up in a bucket. Pause for a public service announcement. My wife Ann feared that the last part of the story might sound like advocacy for binge-eating chicken. Really? Guys and gals out there, uh, don't do what I just did, okay? You'll die young. And now I will continue on this curious side note. When I came to Hollywood, one of the first big auditions I had was to be the spokesperson for Church's Fried Chicken. My commercial agent told me the job could pay over a million dollars. She told me I was the only non-celebrity they were seeing. The producers were impressed that I was from Dallas, where Church's Chicken had their headquarters. I walked into the room and met seven executives from Church's. An elegant older woman asked me, or rather, she directed me, to sit down in a chair facing their table. She asked me what I thought of Church's Chicken. The memories of my passion overwhelmed me, and I launched into a 15-minute extemporaneous speech on whenever I was depressed in college. I would get out of bed at midnight and go to churches and eat a 12-piece bucket while driving randomly around the city. I found the chicken not only relaxing, but addictive. When I finished, the execs were staring at me in horror. Paul Rodriguez got the job. My college years would have been happy enough if the chicken fix worked. It didn't. It only displaced the feelings of emptiness to non-chicken-eating hours. I had the awful realization that loneliness was not an occasional malady that struck like heartburn. It was a condition. A lifelong condition born of the fact that I was born. To be human was to be lonely. Did it follow then that human behavior was nothing more than an escape from loneliness? It could be true. It explained Woodstock and the Boy Scouts and religion and politics and war and different languages and theater and the theater department. People will create anything to feel like they're a part of something. That's why the extreme punishment taught in our Western civilization classes wasn't death. It was banishment. That's why the attacks from Joan Potter to throw me out of the department felt so life-threatening. I was horrified by this revelation. I had to find a more dependable way of dealing with my stress. I experimented with getting drunk in bars. Well, bar. There was one particular watering hole near campus called the Old Church. It used to be an old church, and it felt like it still was. 
It was beautiful inside, wood, stained glass, a balcony where I imagined the choir used to sing. I'm not sure God had vacated the place entirely. It was still full of life, song, and I'm sure the occasional prayer. The parishioners now were drunk young men and college girls with desperate eyes. Being an alcoholic didn't come easily for me. I grew up with no alcohol. My mother and father didn't drink. All of Oak Cliff didn't drink. The Baptists and the Church of Christ made sure that you had to drive 25 miles to get a beer. After a rehearsal, or after I did my homework, when the loneliness set in, I drove to the church. I never sat at one of those little tables. The empty chair opposite me always made me feel worse. I sat at the bar. I was content to be one of many. The bar had advantages. You always had someone to talk to, even if he was only taking your order. Sitting at the bar was creative. I often pretended I was waiting for someone. I'd look at my watch, look at the front door, and shrug in vague disappointment to whoever was sitting near me. But then the magic began. I started to fantasize about whom I was waiting for. I couldn't help myself. Once, I imagined I was waiting for my English professor. She had a gentle manner. She was beautiful in an understated way. In my fantasy, she wanted to meet me here to discuss my last paper. She thought with some changes it was worthy of publication. I was pretty confident I could do the work. I'm very conscientious in my dreams. Once, I pretended I was waiting for Karen, a girl I knew in high school. We never went out. We just saw each other at speech tournaments. But she did come to the first play of the SMU theater season my freshman year, for real. I ran into her at intermission. She said she came hoping to see me on stage. She was being ironic. I was moving sets. Still, on a given night, I would sit at the old church bar imagining that an ember would be kindled between us when she walked through that door to join me for a drink. It's strange. But I never imagined I was waiting for Beth. Never. The thought of her not showing up was too painful. The first big hurdle I had in waiting to be stood up was drinking. The cocktail menu was like looking at a foreign language. My universe of intoxication up until this point was beer. At the old church, I wanted to explore the alcoholic smorgasbord of everything else. I experimented with Mai Tais, a rusty nail, a gimlet, a white Russian which was so terrible I didn't need to try the black Russian, a Harvey Wallbanger, but my favorite by far was the slow gin fizz. One night, I got on a slow gin fizz roll. I was on my third when I made eye contact with a beautiful brunette who looked like she knew more about the world than I did. Something about her eyes held my gaze for a moment, a moment too long. She didn't look away. Neither did I. It was terrifying how quickly it all happened. She walked over and sat down on the empty stool beside me. She introduced herself. I don't remember her name, but I will never forget her eyes. She asked me what I did. Um, I'm an actor over at SMU, I said. She nodded with just a trace of a smile, and I will never forget the smile. Are you in a play now, she asked. I'm rehearsing for a studio production. How about you? Are you in school? She gave a little shrug. I come here when I'm bored, she laughed. Maybe that's why I'm here every night. Well, 
Let me know when your play is on. Maybe I could come see it. Uh, sure. As quickly as she arrived, she was gone. She vanished into the crowd. The bartender stopped working momentarily and watched her with me. She's cute, huh? He said. Yeah, I said, I wonder who she is. Bartender shrugged. I don't know. She's here a lot. Uh, none of my business, but I got a tip for you. Uh, sure, I said. If you're interested in meeting women here, don't drink a slow gin fizz. It's a girl's drink. It is? Yep. Dead giveaway, you're lightweight. Or, or what? You're just not interested in girls. Really? Yep. Well, what should I drink if I like girls? Well, beer. Yeah, yeah, but I want to branch out. Well, then, anything straight. Shot of bourbon, shot of tequila. On the rocks is fine, too. Scotch on the rocks, vodka on the rocks. Then people know you mean business. Thanks. The bartender started to walk away. I called to him, uh, excuse me. He leaned back. Yep. Do you think she knew I was drinking a slow gin fizz? He thought about it for a moment. Probably. But even if she didn't, the odds are she knew you were drinking a girl's drink. Sliced lemon, fruity color. Damn. Do you think that's why she left so fast? Maybe. Or, um, I heard you mention you're an actor. Yeah. Well, there you go. The drink plus being an actor? She probably thought she's barking up the wrong tree. It's possible. I didn't even think of that. Well, while you're here, let me have a scotch on the rocks. Nah, I wouldn't, bartender advised. What? Not after all the slow gin fizzes. Never mix, never worry. Excuse me? Never mix, never worry. Sort of a rule of life. Less likelihood you end up hugging the toilet. Really? It's good to know. Yep, first rule of public drinking. Choose what you feel like drinking that evening. Whiskey, beer, whatever. Then stick with your choice. Wow. Well, what's the second rule? Always leave the bar under your own power. Don't be carried out and don't be thrown out. That's about it. You want another slow gin fizz? Oh, God, no. Good. Fruity drinks are dangerous. Round midnight bathrooms are barf city. Well, maybe just a ginger ale? Sure. Good choice. And it kind of looks like scotch. Yeah, kind of. So I'll take a ginger ale on the rocks. Coming up. He squirted my ginger ale into a tall glass. As he put a cherry in it, he said, And don't worry about that girl. She's not going anywhere. Tomorrow is another day. He laughed and walked off to help other lost souls. Despite the fact that my natural inclination seemed to be that of a horn dog, it didn't take me long to discover that thoughts of women did not comfort me from loneliness. Thoughts of Beth did. It was at the old church I learned that all inclinations are not equally valuable. I found consistent relief in nature. There was peace in the night sky. And the few dawns I saw, I loved even more. Art was a constant. Painting, sculpture, the music of Bach, the place of Shakespeare, all provided an escape from loneliness. The mystery was why.
The music of Beethoven and the music of Miles Davis are wildly different and yet wildly affecting. How does each one work on our souls to bring us comfort? It couldn't be beauty alone. Beth was not necessarily more beautiful than the brunette in the bar. A scientist could never tell me with certainty if what ultimately moved me was a light in Beth's eyes, the way she pretended to speak Japanese when we played Geisha Hoare meets American Sailor on shore leave. But the artist can show us that even though our lives are short, life is a realm that is timeless and has no boundaries. Our escape from loneliness may be in the music itself, or it may be in the unexplainable effect the notes have on time and space. It is the effect without a cause. Just you wait until tomorrow when you wake up with me at your side and find a When I did plays in high school, I thought acting was a fun type of group sport. That changed once I became immersed in scene study at SMU. Most of the real work of an actor happens when he or she is alone. Working on an audition, learning lines, thinking about the part, putting on makeup, preparing for a performance, even taking your final bow. In Joan Potter's class, we studied Stanislavski's first book, An Actor Prepares. It was pretty incomprehensible. It talked about creating a 24-hour life, using the magic if, and the invisible connection between actor and audience. It took me a few decades to recognize that the book has a hidden theme. If the actor couldn't make the transition from lonely to alone, he or she could never survive a life in the theater. Stanislavski called it being autonomous. My first act of autonomy was to pack my own suitcase. The end of the school year was rapidly approaching. Jim and I were three weeks away from the start of our road trip to New York to be professional actors. Well, actually, it was to do summer stock in a barn in Forestburg for $10 a week. But one of the first things you learn as an actor is how to pad your resume. I didn't know how to pack for three months. I suspected you begin with underwear. I packed every pair of jockey shorts I owned. I moved on to socks. It didn't matter if I had a pair. I could go mismatched in an emergency. I had to rely on fantasy to anticipate what clothes I would need. I packed jeans for building sets. I packed jeans that already had paint on them for painting sets. Rehearsal clothes, one set with a jacket and a tie for classical plays, one with a torn t-shirt for modern, fry boots for Shakespeare, hush puppies for Tennessee Williams, I packed my new blue suit for opening night parties. I also tried to imagine what I would do in my free time. I saw myself walking through the Catskill Mountains at sunset with a book in my hand, being an artist. To that end, in addition to underwear and shoes, I packed a small library. No fiction or short stories. And I include this list to bring a smile to Jack Clay, my dear professor, if he ever listens to this story. I brought my three Stanislavski books in case I had trouble building a character or creating a role, an anthology of six classic French plays edited by Eric Bentley, Theater of Revolt 
by Robert Brustein, Willett's Brecht on Theater, New Theaters for Old by Mordecai Gorlick, and Martin Eslin's Theater of the Absurd. Of course, the only thing that was absurd was the idea I was going to read any of these books. I still threw them in the suitcase. I don't regret it. It's always good to know the weight of your pretensions. The most difficult moment of autonomy was going to be saying goodbye to Beth. The summer before we didn't. We couldn't say goodbye. She signed up to take climatology so she could stay in Dallas and see me. Climatology! I was moved by her sacrifice. When her class ended and she had to go back home to Mississippi, I drove to Jackson to see her. We lived in an age with no dragons to slay for love. But seven hours on the I-20 and six weeks studying cloud formations has to be proof of some kind of affection. This year, proximity was going to be more than a problem of distance. It was an equation with more than one unknown. I didn't know where I was going. I was trusting Jim and I could find it in the Mustang with the help of AAA. I didn't know what my schedule would be or if there'd be any place for Beth to stay if she did come for a visit. The only certainty was that I was going to be a working actor, if you call $10 a week working. I wanted our parting to be romantic. Perhaps a walk along Turtle Creek to feed the ducks, then go back to her dorm room to make out. Or maybe go to the old church for a drink, and then go back to make out. I was leaning towards the old church. I could finally show the bartender who I was waiting for. We went to the church early. It wasn't crowded yet. We sat at one of the little two-person tables. The waitress came by. You two know what you want? Beth looked over the enormous drink menu and glazed over. I, I don't know. You go ahead, Steve Alette. Well, I think, uh, I think I'll have... I'll have a slow gin fizz. What's that? asked Beth. It's sort of tart and fruity with a kick. Yeah, I'll have that too, said Beth. The waitress left. I told Beth that I didn't know if I could live without seeing her for an entire summer. Oh, you'll live, she said. You'll probably fall in love with a glamorous New York actress. Never, Beth, never. I love you. I don't know many things in this life, but this much I do know. You make a choice, you stick with it. I'm committed to you. I'll call whenever I can. My declaration of love and the slow gin fizzes began to create a train wreck of cascading hurt and anger. Beth felt my plans for the summer excluded her from the start. The fact that I would be making $10 a week and living in a barn was not an indication of how much I loved acting, but how little it would take for me to leave her behind. I never once asked her to join me. That was true. But I explained that I already felt like I was pushing my luck by bullying a polio victim to get the job. That argument didn't help. Instead of easing the tensions, I sounded like a sociopath. I never intended to hurt Beth. But she was right. I didn't think of her once when Jim and I made our plans for the summer. There is a philosophical debate that runs throughout the Torah and the Talmud. What is more important, what we do or what our intentions are? Who is better, the man who goes to the synagogue every Sabbath, but while he's there, he wishes he was with a prostitute? Or the man who doesn't go to services but is pious in his heart? You would think the answer is obvious, but it's not. 
Many of the wise men of the Talmud fall on the side that what you do carries more weight than what you intend. Giving school books to needy children because you want your picture in the paper is better than being humble and not helping out. This argument went to the heart of the marriage question. In the early 1970s, when Beth and I were at a crossroads at the old church, the cultural trend favored intentions. Who needs a piece of paper? Who needs a ceremony to say publicly, I love you? We know we love one another. All that mattered was that I intended to be with Beth. I spent most of my early life conscious of my intentions. If I did something wrong, I could retreat behind the wall of, hey, I didn't mean to do that. But about 20 years later, I learned the difference between intentions and actions when I stood trembling and in tears before a judge in Memphis, Tennessee, signing a piece of paper and vowing publicly to love Anne until my death. Then I understood. We have very little control of our lives. We have trouble harnessing our minds from thinking the worst of others. We can't control our emotions when the floodgates open. Check that. We can't even control our emotions when the cats scratch the furniture or when the television remote doesn't work. We certainly can't control our fortunes in the world, if we're lucky, if we're not. We can only protect ourselves by choosing a good philosophy and by what we do. Up until that evening at the old church, experience taught me that I had to fight to make my dream of becoming an actor come true. I had to stand up to bullies like Joan Potter. I had to become a bully in terrifying Ron Troutman. Anything to make the next step happen. Now as I looked across the table at Beth, I saw the real possibility that pursuit of that dream could destroy my other dream. I had no mechanism for handling conflicting flight paths of two dreams. I filed Beth's complaint and my confusion in a folder in my brain marked Save for Processing at a Future Date. This could have been the first major document I filed there. This part of my cerebellum has become a storage shed for irreconcilable issues. I've even had to add extra space in my frontal lobe. It's taken over the area I had saved for learning German. Over the years, I've resigned myself to the fact that the boxes usually stay there forever untouched, unless they become the source of a prayer. My remaining days in town were filled with the pleasure of Beth's company. I took her up to my new sanctuary, the music library on the third floor of the drama building. It was almost always empty. There were shelves with thousands of albums. You checked out a record, a pair of headphones in a listening room. Beth and I would go into different rooms and listen to different records and then discuss the pictures the music gave us in our heads over dinner. The afternoon of my departure arrived. McClure and the Mustang stopped at the curb. The car door opened, slammed shut, the whistle, and then the walk. I opened the door, dragging my suitcase behind me. My God, what is that? Jim asked. Uh, clothes, mainly underwear. You know, Rumi, or, or maybe the great unwashed Polak doesn't know, they have things called washing machines now. You only need to pack for a week and one emergency pair of briefs in case you have an accident. Jim reached down and tried to lift my suitcase. Holy crap! Are your underwear made of lumber? What's in this thing? Books, Jim. Books? Yes, I said. What books? New theaters for old? 
Four Stages of Renaissance Style. Four Stages of Renaissance Style by Wiley Cipher. Yeah, yeah, Graham White talked about that in theater history class. Right. And you actually went out and bought it, and you're bringing it? I guess, I said. Are you aiming to be the master of peripheral knowledge? Well, I probably won't have time to read it anyway, I said. Doesn't matter, Jim said. I never see you read anything. You just walk past a bookcase and absorb. I packed a torn T-shirt to do Tennessee Williams. They're doing the glass menagerie, you idiot, not streetcar. And if they did do streetcar, they cast me as Stanley and not you. You're a Mitch. I loaded the suitcase into the trunk, jumped into the front seat. There's nothing more electric than the beginning of a journey. It's often more memorable than the journey itself. Every sense is sharpened, the buckling of the seatbelt, the key in the ignition. Then we hit the road. We merged onto the highway. Jim gave the Mustang some gas, and we were flying. I rolled down the window and let that hot Texas wind hit me in the face. Then Jim signaled and turned off at the next exit. What's going on, I asked. Supplies, said Jim. We pulled into the parking lot of the 7-Eleven. Bathroom break if you need it, said Jim. We've only been driving four minutes. Hey, just trying to be courteous. You never know. Jim went into the store and loaded two cases of Coors beer onto the checkout counter. What's all the beer for? In case we get thirsty on the road. And we don't have Coors in Louisiana. My dad would get pissed if I didn't bring home what's considered to be by many the finest beer in America. Well, that's sweet, Jim. I always have trouble figuring out what to buy for my father. Hey, shut up. Get in the car, Rumi. We have to get to Shreveport by supper time. Dallas, Texas to Forestburg, New York was about 1,500 miles. Driving 15 hours a day at an average speed of 85 miles an hour, we'd be there in no time unless we decided to see the country, or at least as much of the country as you could see going 85 miles an hour. Within an hour, Dallas was in the rear view. All we had was open road before us. Jim was right. A trip to upstate New York for three months of theater was the chance of a lifetime. My fears of separating from Beth were overtaken by the mystery of seeing what lay beyond the end of the known world. Jim started whistling Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and I was happy. It's always easier to be alone when you're not alone. That was An Actor Prepares, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, when you were driving off to Summerstock, could you have imagined that one day in your illustrious career, you would one day be recording a podcast with David Chen? 
It didn't cross my mind at the time, David, but uh, I don't think my ESP was so finely tuned at that point. I see. That's a shame. That's a shame. Uh, if only you could have seen back then the wonders that would await you. I could have skipped so much pain. <laughs> well, you could find more episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com. Find Stephen's new website at StephenTobolowski.com. Uh, and Stephen, you are going to be uh, doing some more travels, doing some more live performances, right? Why don't you share some dates and places with us? I'm going to be in the Los Angeles area in the month of June. I'm going to be at the Skirball Auditorium on June 8th. And then I'm going to be doing a benefit for Theater 40. That's over in Beverly Hills. I'm going to be doing that June 18th. And uh, books will be available there. And I'm going to be doing stories and assigning it should be a good time at both places. Sounds good. And as someone who has been to one of these live performances, I'd highly recommend them uh, because they are very powerful, uh, very well done events that Stephen does. Uh, and it's just a delight to see him perform live. So check them out if you have a chance. Find more dates at stephentobolowski.com. And thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios.